We'll get uh, get going in just a minute. Adam's going to come and he's going to uh, preach from Psalm 22, and uh, so we're looking forward to that. First, just uh, a bit of sad news for our church family this this weekend. April Jewett's uh, father passed away, and so down in St. John, so we can be in prayer for her. And uh, she definitely needs our support and our prayers and uh, encourage you to come out to TAG tonight uh, where we'll pray for her family and for her as we have been for the past few weeks. And uh, so, yeah, so let's let's get behind April and support her in any way that we can and definitely pray for her and her family. Okay, here's Adam. Here we go. Okay, I have two announcements as well. Uh, First of all, we had... Uh, excellent live performance of the Sermon on the Mount yesterday at Wilmot Park. It was A1, A1. So uh, thank you very, very much to everyone um, in the front and in behind the scenes who helped out. There was a lot of work done. And uh, yeah, just I was really grateful to be a part of it and uh, to see everyone come together. It was a great turnout. I think we accomplished both our goals of just bringing the words of Jesus uh, to life for people, but also we wanted to promote the work of International Justice Mission, something similar to what Emma was talking about earlier, and I think we, we did a great job on both those ends. Uh, the second announcement is my wife is uh, 37 weeks pregnant, <laughs> and my first child was born at 37 weeks, so if halfway through this sermon I uh, have to jet, you'll, you'll have to forgive me, and uh, maybe Brent or Graham, somebody will have to finish the sermon, because uh, I've got other things to attend to. So... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the notes are all here. It's all, yep. So, <laughs> I'd actually like to start this morning uh, with a question. Uh, what do the following people have in common? Madonna, Jay-Z, J-Lo, and the Pope. Think about that for a second. Now, there's probably a couple different ways you can answer that. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you could answer that. But one thing is they all have in common is that they wear a cross, uh, of course, the, cross of the, Im- uh, the image of the cross is everywhere. Um, people have it on a tattoo or a bracelet, uh, earrings, but the most fashionable, the most common way for someone to, uh, to wear a cross is probably a little silver or gold necklace. Um, and it, actually, if you're so inclined, you can actually get a, a Duck Dynasty cross. So doing some research on this, you can get um, a wooden cross where normally where there'd be Jesus in the middle of a cross, there's a duck flying through the air, I guess, avoiding trying to get shot by these guys. Uh, And you can get it at Walmart. And when I tried to check it out online, they were actually sold out. They were out of stock. So apparently somebody enjoys country music and Duck Dynasty. So if that's your thing, you can go for that. There's nothing wrong with that, wearing the Duck Dynasty cross or a cross in general. It's it's pretty common, actually. But has it ever struck you how how, kind of strange it is for someone to wear something that really is a form of execution? That's what the cross is. Um, you know, if I came in here today and I had a big necklace of, say, uh, an electric chair, big, big gold electric chair hanging around from my neck, um, would you be coming up and saying, geez, where'd you get that? Like, that's pretty nice. I, would, I wouldn't mind having one. Or if I had a picture of a, a lethal injection tattooed onto my arm or something like that, it might get a couple uh, head turns, right? It's a bizarre thing because those are forms of capital punishment. And yet, the cross is a very fashionable thing to wear. Um, it was actually a form of capital punishment um, in ancient times, but it was so brutal that um, even the Romans themselves had to outlaw it. They abolished it in uh, 337 AD. So, why would someone want to wear a cross? Why would somebody want to put uh, a form of execution hanging around from their neck? Well, I suppose 
the first reason is that the cross is the symbol of Christianity. It's, it's like our logo, if you want to call it that. And it represents the death of Jesus Christ. And the Bible has much and much to say about the death of Jesus. About a third of the Gospels uh, deal with the death of Jesus. Half of Mark's Gospel alone deals with the death of Jesus. And much of the New Testament, what's written after the Gospels, um, looks back and explains why he died. So, why? Why would we want to focus so much on someone's death? You know, most leaders who've uh, shaped nations or influenced world history are known more about their lives than about their death, right? But Jesus, who shaped history more than any other person who's ever lived, is remembered more for his death than his life, isn't he? So why is there such a concentration on the death of Jesus? What's the difference between his death and, say, the death of a war hero or a martyr or someone like that? What makes his such a big deal? Why did he die? Well, there's a little expression in the New Testament that appears a few times, and it says, he died for our sins. What on earth does that mean? What does somebody's death over 2,000 years ago have any relevance to our life here today? John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible, summarizes it. It said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In a nutshell, the answer to the question why is because God loves you. This morning we're going to look at how this one man's death became the greatest act of God's love he could ever give us. We'll be reading through Psalm 22, and we'll be focusing on the parts that have to deal with Jesus' death and him being crucified. Then we're going to go over three things. The first is, who was forsaken? We're going to spend some time looking at the different aspects of Jesus' death and what it was like, what was making his death so unique. What was happening up there on the cross when he died? The second thing we're going to look at is something that has to do with every one of us here sitting in this room. It's something that should pique our interest. We should be very, very interested in the death of Jesus because we want to answer the question, who should be forsaken? And then lastly, we'll go over who will never be forsaken. What, what does it mean to believe in the cross and to embrace the death of Jesus? So here's Graham this morning to read uh, this morning's scripture from Psalm 22. Do you want to stand up, please? Let's, let's uh, stand while we uh, have God's word read to us. You can sit down afterwards for me, but Graham's so tall. So this is Psalm 22 in the um, ESV, and uh, we're actually not going to read the whole thing. We're going to jump halfway through verse 19 down to verse 30. So Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my mouth sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for standing for God's word. Thanks, Graham, for reading it. Father, I pray, um, as Jesus talked a lot about people having eyes to see, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, bring us back in time to see um, the death of Jesus, help us to see why it was needed, why we need it, and help us to believe in it this morning, I pray. Amen. So, the word forsaken means to be abandoned or deserted. No one is there for you. It means that you are truly and utterly alone. And this psalm is filled with someone who's going through that type of agony. It can be read and applied to your life right away. If you feel like at this point you're forsaken, that the whole world's against you, and uh, you can take comfort in knowing that you're not alone, that Jesus also experienced these types of things. Jesus can truly say to you in that situation, I feel your pain. And that can be a, really, uh, that can be a very reassuring thing um, in a perfectly legit way to read this psalm. In fact, the man who wrote it, David, could take a lot of the material he used and apply it to his own life. But the deepest meaning about this psalm isn't about David and what he's going through. Look at verse 10 again. He says, From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So at the deepest meaning of this psalm, it's about someone very unique. It's about someone who, from day one, has always worshipped God, always lived for God, always been um, uh, in that place where he properly knew God. But David couldn't say the same thing. David, in another part of the Bible, he says, In iniquity, I was conceived and brought forth in sin. So in other words, David was saying, uh, you know, I was a sinner from day one. Uh, When I was a little baby, I was cute, I was chubby, but I was still a sinner. I was a smaller version, but I was still a sinner. And I think the same thing could be said about you and I. Um, We could, who here could stand up and say, um, you know, I just want to let everyone know that I'm Mr. or Mrs. Perfect and that I'm God's gift to the world. Um, So the answer to that question of who's forsaken has to be Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who fits that bill perfectly. He's the only one who could read Psalm 22 from beginning to end with a straight face and make it apply about himself. I know if I stood up here today and said, uh, what John, uh, in John 8, verse 46, Jesus says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? In other words, he stood up in front of a large crowd, people who knew him very well, and he said, which one of you can tell me that I've sinned? How can you accuse me of that? He knew he was perfect. But I think if I stood up here today and said the same thing, who can accuse me of sin? There might be a long line of people who would say, uh, I got a a couple things on Adam, and probably my wife would want to get up to the front and say, can I go first? (laughs) So even though this psalm does have parallels to our lives and to David's, the true meaning, the ultimate person who's being forsaken is Jesus Christ. He's the perfect human. And yet, this psalm doesn't focus on his life and how great of an example and how perfect he lived while on earth. It focuses on his death. Like I said, much of the New Testament and the Gospels themselves focus on his death, which is really weird if you think of it. Normally, when someone passes, 
We're trying not to remember them in their sad times and the hardships. Uh, I remember when my grandfather was dying in the summer of 98. Um, he was passing away, and cancer was eating his bodies. And uh, my parents said to me in a, in a really nice way, are you sure you want to see him like this? They wanted me to remember in happy times, which is perfectly normal. Normally, we don't want to know the details of someone's, uh, someone's passing away. And yet, it's not like this with Jesus. In his case, not only does the Bible want us to look at the fact that he died, it wants us to see how he died. It wants us to pay attention to the details. The whole psalm is about not looking away. There's something here that God wants us to see up close. This psalm is saying to us, don't peel your eyes away from this. Don't look away because it's ugly. I want you to see this God-forsaken man in his final moments. I don't want you to forget what it's like for him. And that's the same story throughout the whole Bible. In Galatians 3, Paul says something like this. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And another translation says it like this. I had shown you a billboard with a picture of Christ dying on it. In other words, Paul is saying, I never let you get away from the cross. I never let you hide your your eyes away from it. Some people get uncomfortable with it, but I wanted you to see the brutal way that Jesus died. I wanted to put him up on a billboard with neon flashing lights saying, look, this is what happened the day Jesus died. So let's look. Mark 14 says this. Um, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes gathered together. Many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. What's going on here before Jesus is led to be executed is a false trial. Roman soldiers have come and arrested him in the dead of night on trumped-up charges, false accusations. And then what's happened is he's led to the Sanhedrin, which is basically like the Jewish Supreme Court. And these people hate Jesus so much that even though they don't have any true dirt on him, they've bribed and coerced people to come in as false um, accusers, false witnesses, and say, I've seen Jesus do this, I've seen Jesus do this, this is where he broke the law, this is what he did that was illegal. And all of this is a complete farce. It's a complete um, mockery of the justice system. So the first thing that Jesus experiences being forsaken is that, is that justice system. He's the one person you'd think on earth that if ever there was a trial against him, no one would have anything to say. And it's true, they didn't. They had to lie. In fact, the, the Sanhedrin, that Jewish Supreme Court, not only wanted to get Jesus um, thrown in jail, they want him to be killed. They want him to be brutally murdered. But they don't have the right to do that at that time of year. So they actually recruit the Romans to do it for them, to do their dirty work. They beg, they downright beg the Romans to torture and then kill Jesus in the most disturbing way. But notice here the the hypocrisy. For the Jewish people, it was illegal to kill somebody. So what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus, you broke the law, and so we want to kill you for it. And we're willing to break the law in order to kill you. You see the hypocrisy there? So it's a complete farce. Throughout this whole process, Jesus would have had every right to stand up and say, you're a hypocrite, you're corrupt, you're lying, but he didn't. He was silent. The next thing that happens is a flogging. Once the Romans take control of the situation, um, they, they bring on a torture session in public. A flogging is um, basically one of the most belittling, humiliating, demeaning ways that you can degrade a person. It's a form of punishment that Roman citizens weren't allowed to experience. So Jesus was going to undergo torture that the Romans wouldn't even do to themselves. It starts with a whip that we would recognize as like a cat o' nine tails. It's called a flagrum. And it has many long strands on it, 
But the difference is, at the end of those strands is pieces of hard material, glass, bone, some kind of metal, so that when you whip the person, you tear them open. The whip is so brutal that in uh, 1 Kings 12, 11, um, one sicko king who used this stuff said this, my father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. He's comparing being flogged with being bitten by scorpions. And if you remember the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, um, you'll remember that there was a lot of people um, when it first came out who were passing out in the movie theaters. And it was this scene of Jesus being flogged that people, um, people couldn't, were, were overwhelmed with, rightly so. The church historian Eusebius recounts one vivid, horrible detail of a scene of scourging. He says, For they that were bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both the bowels and the members, were exposed to view. Flogging is so brutal that sometimes people died even before they made it to the cross. This is what Jesus goes through. So he's He's being forsaken, not only by the justice system, but also by the public. They're all watching him, humiliated, they're mocking him, they're laughing him. See what he's thinking here in verse 6 and 7. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Next, what happens is after Jesus um, is led out of the city up to a mount called Calvary, where he's going to be crucified, On his way up, he's forced to carry his own wooden cross, but so exhausted from the flogging and the beating, um, they have to recruit a stranger from out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross for him because he's so um, incapacitated at that point. But notice here a small detail that you really have to read between the lines. Think about it. Just a few weeks before, he had thousands and thousands of people following him around the countryside. When, when we did the Sermon on the Mount, you want to reenact it in the sense that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people hanging on to his every word. They're following him. He tries to go out into the desert. They follow him there. When John the Baptist dies and he wants to spend some time alone, crowds meet him. He just can't get away from people. But of all those people, he chose 12 men to invest in in a very serious way. He personally trained each and every one of them. They were his team. But more than that, more than just being um, part of his, his posse, they really... They were, became his friends, his brothers. They ate in the same camps. They, uh, they would have spent all kinds of time together. They shared their lives to the point where Jesus doesn't look at them as servants anymore. He says, you're my friends. But where are they? Where are they when Jesus is in his greatest hour of need? Where are they to carry his cross? Where have they gone? He told them, this very night you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Have you ever been abandoned by someone? Someone was supposed to be there for you, and, uh, and they failed you. That's what's happening to him in the greatest hour of his life, the greatest need. No one's there for him. He's forsaken by the public. He's forsaken by his friends. Lastly, once they get up to Calvary, they nail him to a cross. Uh, a cross um, involves you stretching out your arms and extending your legs and people taking nails and hammering through your body into that wood. So when they put you up there, gravity's pulling you down, but the nails are holding you up. That's what Jesus is experiencing. Do you see what Paul means when he says, I put him up there on a billboard, I put neon flashing lights for you to see? God doesn't want us to look away at what happened on Calvary. He's being forsaken. He's going through a false trial. The courts fail him. He's being brutally beaten and mocked. 
They made fun of him. The crowds have left him and his disciples ran away. His friends have forsaken him. Do you see what kind of death Jesus is dying? Going back to Psalm 22. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This has got to be one of the most terrible deaths anyone could ever experience. But why? Why would God want Jesus to experience these terrible things? After all, he lived a perfect life. You hear it in the psalm. He's saying, look, I trust you. Other people trust you. You've bailed them out. You've backed them up. But for me, you've forsaken me. Which brings us to the, what the Bible means when it says, who should be forsaken? Who should really be up there on the cross, so to speak? In his life, Jesus talked a lot about people being forsaken by God when they die. It's hard to read Jesus for too long without being um, interrupted in a rude way by the way he talks about hell. Over and over and over again, he routinely shows that when we die, it's not the end. That we live on. And that there are two places, heaven and hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, For it's been appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone more than any other Bible preacher combined. All the other references to hell and judgment um, don't outweigh the amount of times Jesus himself talked about it. But why? Isn't Jesus the personification of love and mercy and goodness? Of course he is. That's why he told people about it. He warned people. He wanted people to know so that they could escape it. It's estimated that out of the 40 or so parables, um, the stories that Jesus told, half of them address the topic of judgment. It's everywhere in his teaching. He spoke very clearly about it. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we went over yesterday, one small little verse can get overlooked. And I think that's part of the problem, is that when we skim over something, we're not paying attention to every single detail, every single word that Jesus chose. He chose it carefully. Matthew seven thirteen to 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Think about it. Just let it sink in what he's saying there. If you travel from uh, Fredericton and you want to go up to a place called Ripples, it's a small little town outside of Fredericton, you could go a back road from McGowan's Corner to Ripples. It's a narrow road because not a lot of people travel on it, so it's smaller. But if you wanted to go from, say, Fredericton to a place like Moncton, where a lot more people travel on, you're going on a wide highway. It's well-kept. It's four lanes. It's huge. The majority of people are on that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't allow other people to influence your decisions in life. Just because everyone else goes one way, just because the majority of people are doing one thing or believing one way, I'm telling you, hell is real. And he wants you to escape that. He wants you to go on that narrow road, even if you have to go it alone, so to speak. Now, our society misses it. It has no grid for um, the afterlife, so to speak. Even though, um, statistically, it's still very popular to believe in heaven, hell has dropped off the the face of the earth, so to speak, when it comes to popular opinion and things like that. Statistics show it. Um, But that's, it's really not relevant if you want to look at it that way. If I took a poll of everyone in this room and said, do you believe in the continent of Australia? And then somehow, the majority of you said, no, I don't. It doesn't matter. It really has no bearing on whether Australia is real or not. It is real. Australia exists. And the same thing. Jesus knows the truth. He's the only one who's come back from the grave. He can tell you what's on the other side of life. And he says, hell is real. Now, our society 
even for the people who do believe in hell, think there's like maybe four people there. There's like Hitler, Stalin, some nut job, and like your grade eight math teacher, right? So <laughs> even, even if it's real, it's not a big deal. It's nothing to worry about. But James 2.10, this is the Bible. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. So what does that mean? Think about it like this. If, if I'm caught driving like a buck 60 in, a, in an 80 zone, right? Double the speed limit. I'm going to get in trouble. Say I get pulled over by the police. They ticket me and I, I appeal. And maybe I go before um, a judge or some court that appeal process goes forward from. Say I go up to him and I say, listen, I broke the law. There's no question about it. I totally um, did the wrong thing there. But I want you to look at the rest of my life and how I'm a law-abiding citizen all the other times and I want you to forgive what I've done. It's not going to work. It doesn't work like that. Nobody gets let off for all the other things they've done right. The justice system is there to make you accountable for the times you break the law. And God is so much more perfect and holy and unimaginably better and more just and more good than any human judge. And so every single time you've broken God's law, he knows about it. He's kept track of it. Ephesians 5, verse 5 and 6 says this, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you. Don't go on that wide highway. For because of such things, God's wrath comes. So, uh, I think another way to help us see it is, imagine every time you sinned, every time you broke God's law, you owe him a debt. Now, normally, what would happen is, um, because God is merciful and kind, the Bible said he's slow to anger, he wishes all people to come to repentance, he doesn't hold you accountable for your actions as soon as you do it, okay? So, you sin, and life keeps going on. So, what he does is, he keeps track of everything, He knows all that's going on in your mind, your emotions, your thought life, the words you say, the actions you've done, all the bad that you've ever done in the past, things present or things in the future. He knows all the good opportunities you've had throughout your life but failed to do them. So it's both actions that you've done that are wrong but also inactions that you should have done. And every time you've messed up and you've broken God's law, it's like a bill. It's like a debt that he is holding against you that you're going to have to pay for one day. So this this is you swearing... This is you checking somebody out that you're not married to. This is you being jealous. On and on and on. You could just go through the last week. Say someone, say God showed you on a big jumbotron as he's followed you around with a video camera. All the things that have just gone on inside your head. All the bills, all the debt that you owe God. Okay? You're going to have to come good for that at the end of your life. So now you can say... Well, hold on, buddy. Okay, just wait a second. You're getting a little intense on us. You know, before you were saying, look, Jesus is being forsaken. I was okay with that. But now you're flipping the table. Now you're saying that we should be forsaken, that there's going to be hell to pay, so to speak. That's right. I am trying to give you hell. I'm trying to scare the hell out of you, okay? Now, some of you are going to go home and say, Adam was cussing a lot at church today. But if you listen to everything I say in its context, you know that's not the case. Okay, I am saying this the same reason that Jesus talked about hell. I'm trying to urge you, I'm trying to help you see that there's a way that you can never be forsaken. So who will never be forsaken? The person who gets their debts paid off. The person who all these bills gets ripped up. 
God is willing to do that for you this morning. He's willing to wipe the slate clean. He's willing to forgive you because he loves you. 1 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. The bad news is we have a spiritual debt that we cannot pay. But the good news is we owe that debt to a God who is so much more gracious and merciful and kind than you can ever imagine. And so he comes up with a plan. And it encompasses two parts. God the Father and God the Son decided this, that we need a mediator and that we need a payment. Now a mediator is someone who's going to stand between us and God, so to speak. Okay? So the mediator is kind of like in the legal sense, an arbitrator. When two parties can't get along for whatever reason, normally the courts will appoint an arbitrator, someone to come in and represent both parties equally, okay? So we need that between us and God. We need somebody who's going to equally represent God and all his purity and all his justice and see things the way he does. But we also need someone to represent us as humankind. In the Bible, the man Job longed for someone like this. He says in Job 9 verse 32 and 33, speaking of God, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come together to trial together. There is no arbitrator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Now, remember what John 3.16 said, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the one who is fully God. He can fully represent God's side of the equation. He can mediate between us because he is God. But Jesus was sent. He's also a human being. So he can represent both us and God. He's our mediator. The Bible repeats this over and over again when it says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 5.2. This is why no other religion can help you at this point. Christianity is the only one that teaches Jesus is both God and and man. He's our mediator. He's the only one that can represent us both to bring us to that, that uh, table, so to speak, to make a payment. This is the second part. You know, in real life, if you get um, in debt and say your bills are over your head, even if you want to get forgiven of those debts or you want to have them paid off, someone has to good, come good for that money, right? Say it's Visa or MasterCard, say they forgive you. They're still taking on the debt themselves, aren't they? They're paying it off. It doesn't just disappear. A payment needs to be made. And this is the most striking, and uh, it's, it's both horrific and beautiful at the same time. The first verse of Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The worst part of the cross isn't the social um, abandonment or the fact that his disciples left him or the excruciating physical pain that Jesus is experiencing. The worst thing that Jesus is experiencing is spiritual. It's God's wrath. It's God's anger. It's all the anger that he feels at our debts being poured out on Jesus on the cross. The best man who ever lived looks up at God and sees nothing but clouds. He's alone. He's abandoned. He says, why have you forsaken me? That's why I mean it's horrific and beautiful. It's so terrible for him because it's so good for us. Jesus agreed to pay off our debt. And if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, 
your application, your um, homework for the week, right? Every sermon um, should give you kind of something to think about or something to do during the week. All your application, your homework for this week is to be tickled pink, all right? To be happy, to be ecstatic, to be grateful, to be expectant for what God's going to do for you in the future, to be hopeful what he's doing today, okay? To be unbelievably appreciative that you should be forsaken, but that Jesus Christ was forsaken for you, okay? But that does not apply to everyone. Some people are in a different boat. There's a famous verse the world over that, um, sorry, there's a famous verse that explains why the cross is famous the world over. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're here this morning and you're not a practicing Christian, if you're someone who doesn't consider themselves a follower of Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you and put your life in his hands, then I'm urging you, I'm inviting you to accept what he's done for you here this morning. Jesus can tear up those bills. Every debt, every spiritual debt that you owe God, all the things that you should come good for at the end of your life, all the judgment can be put on Christ. If you accept what Jesus has done for you, it's a free offer that he gives you, but you have to accept it with faith and with repentance. And you can do that this morning. So, this is what Psalm 22 says at the very end. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. God has made a way for you, through Jesus, to be forgiven. To be completely and utterly forgiven. He was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. He died so that you can have life. Now the band is going to come up, and uh, we're going to keep singing. So if you guys want to come up now, please. Um, But... I want you to realize this morning that you have a debt to pay. That you owe God for your sins. But that you can have forgiveness and new life here this morning. By what I said, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance means this. Faith means that you trust in what Jesus did for you. That he was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. Repentance means this. It means to change your mind. It means to change the way you're thinking about that you're in control of your life and who's in charge. And to repent means to turn to say, God, you're in control of my life. I give you ownership of my life. This morning you can do that. And uh, I'm going to invite you, when the, once the band starts, if that's you and you're feeling God speaking to you and you're saying, I don't want to be forsaken, I want to be forgiven. I invite you to come down to the front. Brent and I will pray with you. Um, Marilyn as well. And what we're going to do, the reason I asked you to come down to the front is Jesus said this, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. So it's, it's an amazing opportunity here this morning to come down to the front to receive Christ's forgiveness. I'm urging you, I'm, I'm pleading with you to make that choice for yourself. God loves you. That's the message of the cross. That's why people wear the world over. That God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's reaching out to you this morning, so you reach back. So, Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you are a mediator, that you stand in the gap between us who are sinful and God who is holy, and that you made that payment, that you were forsaken so that we should never be forsaken. And I pray that you would give us faith and repentance this morning um, to respond. We pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.